Ted Simon is often referred to as a pioneer or founder of adventure motorcycling. He's no longer riding across the globe, yet at 88 years old, Ted still has an opinion and is relevant in his ideas of travel and adventure. Coming up on this episode, Ted tells us to get lost. I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. We got a good one for you. Okay, before we get going, I want to thank some sponsors that helped bring this episode of Adventure Rider Radio to you. The first one is Max BMW Motorcycles. They've been doing it since 2002. That's Outfitting Adventure Riders. And they have got a load, I mean the full load of parts and accessories online that they can ship to your door. You order online. It's a great way to get your parts. MaxBMW.com. Get their e-rider newsletter. It's free. MaxBMW.com. That's M-A-X-B-M-W.com. Best Rest Products is where the number one tire pump in the business for us motorcyclists comes from. It's called the Cycle Pump, made in the USA, has lifetime warranty. They also distribute the Google Tech filters for North America. The website, cyclepump.com. That's Best Rest Products at cyclepump.com. Hi, I'm Jim Martin, your host here on Adventure Rider Radio. I've got a, a personal sort of request for you. We're now in our, our sixth year of producing Adventure Rider Radio, and it has been a great ride and continues to be. Listenership has continued to grow throughout that time. We get great feedback on the guests we've had on the show, and we've attracted some advertisers. But here's the thing. We don't want too many ads on the show. So before we even got advertisers, we put a limit on how much we would allow on the show. Um, That's before we talk to anyone. And also that we would only accept ads from relevant companies that we feel had quality products to offer, relative quality products um, to offer to our listeners. Then we can feel confident that we're doing our best for you. And and now this approach sort of caps how much money we can make uh, on the show as far as advertising goes. And we knew this from the start. That's why we built it on a, a model of some advertising and hope to attract listener support. Now, I know I'm I'm biased, obviously, but we're big fans of listener support because we think it's a great system. It's, it's kind of a voting system in a way. If you like what you're hearing, you get enjoyment from it, you learn something, you can show that. You can show what, you, what you're getting from it by supporting the show. That goes for anybody's show, for that matter. Now, I know that many people will think that somebody else will do it, or maybe I'm already spending enough money every month, and I get it. Sometimes it's tough to justify, but here's the thing. We faithfully produce Adventure Rider Radio every week for you in hopes that you're going to see some value in it, that maybe it adds to your life, and you're going to help us by supporting the show. We do it every week. It's our full-time gig. We aren't retired. We could not and probably may never get to retire just because that's the way things work out in life. Um, But this is how we make our living, producing the show for you. So consider what you spend on a cup of coffee or a snack and what you get from that. And then consider what Adventure Rider Radio offers you each week and maybe drop by our website, adventureriderradio.com and click on the support button. Um, Anything $10 or more gets you an Adventure Rider Radio sticker for your bike or your toolbox. Anything $50 or more gets you a mention on our Raw show, plus the stickers, of course. We also have Patreon um, set up for monthly support. We'd love it if you consider that. A few dollars may not be missed in your monthly budget, but for us, if we get enough of them, it does great things and it allows us to do even more with Adventure Rider Radio than what we're doing now. We need your support. AdventureRiderRadio.com forward slash support. Thanks. Hi, I'm Sam Manning. I'm and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. And Green Chili Adventure Gear, making American-made heavy-duty innovative luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. You can turn any dry bag into luggage using the strapping system. Um, great systems. Matter of fact, all the stuff they make is super tough. I've tried tons of it myself. The website, greenchiliadv.com. That's greenchiliadv.com. Well, you know, it's not even guesswork. It's a proven fact that you will get more miles from your chain by oiling it regularly. Here's what you got to look at. The Moto Breeze chain oiler. It's got no moving parts. It's got no electrical parts. It runs off of air pressure, and it's got vacuum connections that take the oil down and deposit it onto a felt pad that goes directly onto your chain. An ounce of oil gets you 1,000 miles or 1,600 kilometers. MotoBreeze.com. There's two eyes in there. MotoBreeze.com. 
Late in 1973, when a 42-year-old rider swung a leg over his Triumph Tiger, he jumped hard on the Kickstarter, clicked the shifter into first, and slowly released the clutch. Now, in hindsight, that was a huge moment in adventure motorcycling history that, at the time, probably had little meaning except to the rider himself. But the inertia gained as that heavily loaded 500cc twin cylinder got up to speed, well, that inertia exceeded all expectations and went on to be much, much more. It continued through his four-year journey circumnavigating the globe, covering 64,000 miles or 103,000 kilometers through 45 countries. But the physical grand tour of the globe, that was just the beginning because it was after it was over, after it was all over, when the bike and the rider had returned home, it was in the writing of a book about that adventure. That would propel this story into 2019 and beyond as one of the most well-known and widely read books on motorcycle travel. The man was Ted Simon. The book is Jupiter's Travels. And today, 46 years after the trip and over 40 years since the book was published, Jupiter's Travels continues to sell and Ted Simon is still recognized as one of the founders of the adventure motorcycle movement. Even Ewan McGregor and Charlie Boorman were inspired by Ted Simon, so much so that during their filming of Long Way Down, Long Way Round series, they flew Ted out to meet them at one point. And then, at the age of 70, and that was before Ewan and Charlie, Ted went off to do the same trip again by motorcycle through the same areas, trying to recreate his original trip to see what had changed. And now, although retired somewhat from the world of motorcycle travel, Ted still has an opinion on what travel should be about. Oh, my name. <laughs> yes, my name is Ted Simon. Um, and uh, 40 years or more ago, I decided that it would be a really good idea to ride around the world on a motorcycle didn't thinking that nobody had ever done it. And uh, as a writer, I'd be able to write a great book about it. And I managed to get it all together and set off in 1973 with a Triumph Tiger 100 and spent four years going around the world. And uh, the book that I wrote when I finished it was called Jupiter's Travels. Um, it uh, was, I'm happy to say, very successful. And it's still publishing today, 40 years after I, after it was first in print. So that's really a quite extraordinary thing. I'm amazed. Very few books stay in print for very long, uh, 40 years, and it's still going strong and people are still buying it. And I'm very happy to be getting some of their money. So yeah, that's, that's who I am. But, um, but I don't... I'm now 88 years old, and uh, although I can still sit on a motorcycle and ride it, I'm not. I'm pretty much out of the uh, adventure business, and, uh, and I'm sitting very happily at home in the south of France, um, waiting for people to come to me. Ted, welcome back to Adventure Rider Radio. It's a great pleasure to be with you, Jim. Last time we spoke, you were at your home, but it was in California. You're now in the south of France. What happened in that time period? What? When was that? How many years ago was that? I guess it was. A, I guess it was a couple of years. I'm trying to think. You know what? It was your. It was your birthday, but um, well, uh -huh. it couldn't have been. Uh, maybe, maybe it was. Maybe oh, it, was three, it four must years have ago. been four or five years ago. I it think. wouldn't be more than four. Wouldn't be more than five. We're in our sixth year doing this now. Well, four maybe. Yeah. I. I mean, I. I moved here. Um, Essentially, I moved here at the beginning of 2016. So uh, I think it must have been before that. Um, and why, well, why am I here? It's because, <laughs> the, the real question is, why was I not here before? Because I've always loved this. I've always liked France. Um, I've always been drawn to the south of France. I'm, I, I feel very... Um, energized by the light and the and the and the stone and the old the old houses and uh, and the Mediterranean. I'm not very far from the sea, and oddly enough, I hardly ever go there. But it's not, knowing that it's there is the main thing. 
Mm. and uh, and I, I realized that I have to think about this being probably the last time that I'll be able to move anywhere of my own volition. And so um, I wanted to be back where I most have most wanted to be, uh, which was not to, to denigrate California because I loved the open space and the opportunity to do pretty much anything I wanted on the piece of land that I was able to buy thanks to Jupiter's Travels. And, uh, and, and I, I've been there, I'd been there almost 35 years by the time I realized that I could come back to France. Uh, th- those were very different lives. But what do you mean that you realized you could come back to France? What was holding you back? What was a barrier? Well, the thing, the thing is, um, I'm an odd bird in a way, because although I really love to travel, the other thing I love doing is, um, is building stuff and growing stuff and, uh, and, and working out systems for doing this, that and the other. And California was perfect for that. I, I had a, a quite a large piece of land and, uh, and I enjoyed working on it. Uh, I, I, by pure chance, uh, found myself being one of the first people to do organic gardening for um for sale with vegetables for sale and i started a, a big um organic garden that, and took the stuff down to the san francisco bay area myself and did that for three years actually until i realized that you can't do that and write books and so the books <laughs> took over and i stop doing it. So, <laughs> so now you got a bunch of weeds in the garden after that. <laughs> so, so now, well, now I've been trying to get other people to come along and take over uh, because I put a lot of effort and money into the infrastructure, you know, to make the, the garden viable. And uh, and a number of people came and they, they all were all very enthusiastic for about a year, and then then they began to realize that it was actually very hard work. <laughs> and, <laughs> After the novelty and, wears off, and you realize the day to day is just work. Oh yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> so so um, I kept trying, and I've been doing that. But but now I really I really do have somebody there who's taking advantage of everything for me, um, and uh, and I. And I don't have any family ties or anything that, that require me to be in California. So that's what I meant by feeling free to come back to mm. France. Now, so you still have your place in California? Yes, I do. Um, I, have a, I have three houses on it that I built. And uh, one of them has the, the meat manager at the local supermarket. Uh, and the other one is... Um, is Brian, who who uh, I'm very glad to have found, who is really making use of the land and the the opportunities that there are there, and the the third house is empty from when I go back every now and again. Hmm. Um, so it's a nice, it's a really nice situation. I'm very very pleased with it. You um, you mentioned Jupiter's travels selling. 40 years in, 40 plus years in, I guess, Um, still selling, still, still making you money. What is the deal with that? I mean, everybody asks this question about Jupiter's travels. I think if you're interested in writing a book, and I think we might've even talked about this the last time we talked, but I I have to ask you again, because I think our perspectives change as we go through life. What is it about (laughs) that book? Why is it still selling? Why does it still send you a check? Okay. That's, um, it's a, a huge question. And in a way, I don't even have the answer. But I, of course, I've tried to put into words what I think. Um, uh, obviously, I was passionate about it. Um, as I said, as I've said many times, I um, at, in those days, in 1973, we were all really much more ignorant about the world than we are now, inevitably, because uh, we didn't have this barrage of, of pictures showing us everything all the time. Uh, it, it was actually not very easy to form an opinion, uh, form a picture 
of what it would be like to arrive at a uh, at a, a port in the north of Brazil, for example, or, or to be coming up to the Andes or any of those things. There was a great deal of mystery still about all that. And uh, and so when, when I went off on this journey, it, it really was a, a huge challenge. It seemed to me that I was taking a tremendous risk and and uh, when you do something that takes a lot of courage, um, it intensifies all your experiences. And so, so I think that must have uh, obviously translated into something very readable. Uh, but then, on, on top of that, is the fact that I was a writer, not a not a motorcycle rider, and. Uh, I knew more or less what to do with the, with the experiences that I was having and the things that I'd recorded. Uh, I, four years is a very long time. A huge amount of stuff happens in four years. So, so I had an enormous amount of material to draw from and I was able to choose, uh, pick and choose among the things that happened so that it wasn't monotonous in any way. And... Uh, in fact, I had to discipline myself quite hard because there was so much more stuff than I actually got into the book that I realised the book could only be so long before it was going to be too much for people to want to pick up. So so all those things helped, but I think the main thing was that at the time, um, e- even though I'm not the first person to go around the world on a motorcycle, very few people knew about any any of the other trips that had been made. And uh, and it came across as though I was the first and it, that intrigued people. Then in addition, I was very fortunate because I had the support of the Sunday Times. Uh, the Sunday Times published little bits and pieces from me as I went around. Um, and uh, that sort of whetted people's appetite for something. So when the book did come out, I did have something of a ready-made audience. And I think that's really, you know, putting all the bits and pieces together is, is what's made the book so, um, uh, so, so enduring. Uh, I, I would like to think that it also has something to do with my ability, my writing ability. Um, it's uh, one of the things that I'm offering to others, you know, if they want help. Uh, I think I do know a few tricks and uh, of the trade and ways to make the book work better. Um, a lot of it has to do with defeating the the real enemy of, of people who are, of the sort of book that describes a, a, a long a long period of experiences, and that is the chronology demon. It, it it becomes very boring when when it's really we did this and then we did that and then we did that and then we did the other uh, and uh, you have to somehow break that uh, that kind of inevitability thing you have to make it uh, jump out of the page as something special. I thought you were going to say just the cover photo did it for you. Something simple like that. It's the most valuable photograph I've ever taken. That, that was really, really fortunate. And, and not yes. knowing that, of, of course, at the time. But, you know, you said about the ignorance of the world and how back in 1973, mm. people didn't know as much about the world, obviously, as today with social media mm. making it so easy to, to see things. Yeah. I mean, back then when you saw a photograph of a place, a foreign place to wherever you lived, it was likely in something like National Geographic, maybe the Sunday edition of a, of a newspaper or something like that. And I would imagine part of what your your articles in the Sunday Times were about was informing people of what you found, informing people of what's out there and what's in the world. And yet nowadays, everybody seems to have all that at their fingertips. And, and it just makes you wonder if it, if it isn't sort of, um, I mean, I hate to say finished in a way, but I mean, once you've explored everything and, and everything, all the pictures have been shown, what's left? Well, the one thing I have to tell people is that, that the that it isn't actually anything like what you think it is. Uh, and that, that that's the unfortunate thing. I mean, people imagine maybe because they've seen any number of photographs of Iraq, for example, 
they really have, they still have no idea what it's actually like in Iraq. Um, anytime, anytime anyone goes to a place and picks up a magazine from the West, which is describing that place, knows that what they read in the magazine is nothing like what they've found out for themselves when they get there. And, uh, and, and, and so all this deluge of, of, uh, of photography is, um, is, is doing a really bad job because it doesn't actually convey the reality of the place when you're in it. How, how do you mean? Like, what, like, what, do you de- what would you describe here? What I'm describing is that is that people don't take pictures of the very much of the everyday nitty gritty the 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 meetings with people the the uh, the inevitable involvement in the life of the place that you're in none of that can be trans translated into pictures and understood by somebody who's not been there. So you, you really don't you really don't know how people are actually going to react to you and you don't know how you're going to feel about them until you go there. And those are all very important things and they, they lead to a different kind of experience entirely than the artificial one that you think you can create for yourself out of watching a lot of pictures. So, so what you're saying then is, is that even though we're, there's pictures everywhere and information everywhere, um, the world's still sort of unknown. It's still, it's, we're still ignorant. Yes, yes, I am. I'm saying that in t- in in terms of the of, of an individual person's experience, you cannot know how it's going to be for you until you get there. Wow, that's a really nice message. Really, I think a lot of the feelings nowadays, or, or at least in sometimes it comes up where you, you talk about things. It's well, well, even we talked a little bit about it before we started this about the been there, done that thing. Like the idea of riding your motorcycle around the world. It's so many people have done it now. So many people have written books about it, articles about it and posted it yeah. on social media that, yeah. um, I mean, I said, you know, it's, it's almost cliched when you hear it, you know, it, it, well, needs, it, is. it needs a hook. It needs something yeah, else. The first, first time I heard the acronym RTW, I thought, well, that's it. <laughs> it's, there it goes. It's, it's you know that's really sort of minimized the whole thing, um, and and you know again we're sort of prisoners of these uh, of these little uh, sort of indicators like RTW and so on because uh, they diminish everything they make it all. It wasn't important that I went round the world. That was a useful thing for selling the book. Uh, um, and of course, I did intend to come home, but it wasn't going around the world that was important. What was important was being in the places that I went to on my way around and what happened to me. I, I could have actually, if I hadn't been writing a book, I probably would have stayed in three or four of, of, of the places that I went to on my way around. It would have been a very, I would have been very happy there. Um, but you can't, you cannot know what it's like uh, uh, unless you do it. And I think that's what people really ought to, ought to understand. But again, you know, the, 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 they should be also rather clear about what, why they're going. What I think a lot of people go around in order to be able to come back with something to show other people um, rather than actually experience it, experiencing it themselves while they're out there. Well, that's what RTW is, isn't it? I mean, I mean that's that's yeah, I mean, uh, I, sort of a, a milestone, a notch in the belt, or whatever you say, RTW, because around the world, I mean, that's only one track. I mean, I think you said that as well. As, yeah. um, that's one thin line. When I was in Nepal on that first trip, um, I was down by the Burning Ghats, where 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 they they have um, huge heaps of of timber and they put the body, bury the body in the timber and then set fire to it, right? And that's how they, that's how they cremate. And, uh, and I, I was looking at one of these heaps of wood that was about to be fired up and I, and I saw that they hadn't done it very well because there was a, a child's arm was hanging out of the pile of wood and it was very touching, it was very very sad thing to see and exactly at that moment a bus drew up a big bus coach and out of it came a a large number of Japanese people all in black suits 
and, and um, all with their cameras up. And they must have taken photographs of this thing. Uh, um, uh, and then they were rushed back into the bus again. And I don't think any of them ever actually stopped to look at it without the camera in, in, the, in front of their eyes. So they, they probably didn't notice this arm that was hanging out of the thing until they got back to, to Kobe or, or Tokyo or wherever they came from. Um, and, and it's that, that's the sort of thing that one has to contend with, you know, that, that, um, that, that people are so busy thinking about what they're going to do with the stuff when they get home that they don't actually experience it while they're there. And it's certainly prominent nowadays with social media where you're taking photographs and videos and and trying to, I mean, you know, if somebody was going to go and do a trip and try and write a book about it, they might do this, a similar approach to what you did back in 1973, but instead of going to the Sunday times, they're going to turn to social media to try and and gain that attention. So you could sort of equate the two, but I'm totally with you as far as you can get stuck by looking through your camera lens and miss what's happening. Because, I mean, this is something that, um, you know, I've worked many years in tourism and it's one thing I used to tell people before they saw wildlife was think about how you want to experience this. Do you want to remember looking at it through your camera, fuzzy picture, or maybe you messing around trying to focus on something? Or do you want to remember actually being there, feeling the wind and, and seeing it with your own eyes and seeing the look on other people's faces? So, That's but, absolutely right. But it's, but it's sort of this, a similar thing. If, they're, if they were going to, to try and promote themselves you know, while they're going around the world or while they're doing whatever trip it is, they might use social media in a similar way. Do, do you think that, that the, the sort of the technology being that, uh, that it's so easy to take photographs nowadays, it's so easy to mm-hmm. take video, that that's making it so that there's too much of it because you took photographs as well, but you don't feel you had that same experience. Yeah, I took very few pictures compared with what happens now because it was all on film, of course. I had to carry it. Um, I'm very glad that the, on the day that I saw, I actually watched a tiger uh, strolling through the long grass, not very far away. I'm so glad I didn't have a camera. Uh, it, it, you know, I think it would have cheapened the whole thing for me if I'd had one. Um, I, I'm. Uh, I think I'm going to come across as being a rather de- depressing old man now, because in a way I can't see how this, how social media and this deluge of information that is coming at us um, is going to lead to anything very good. You know, I'd, I'd uh, always hoped and still. I suppose still do hope that that um, that we'll find a, a better way forward than, than than the one we're following at the moment. But it it's too um, it's it's too difficult to imagine how uh, people. It's difficult to imagine what it is that's going to really raise the the temperature of somebody going off on a, on a trip in the way that I did so that with this enhanced sense of, of everything being a maximum that the, that's when you experience things in a way that you probably never would normally and, uh, and, and that kind of thinking brings you so much closer to the reality of the world and, and, and the reality of people's situations um, I don't think I'm able to make this case very well. Uh, I, I, I don't think people are sufficiently focused on what they can achieve from a journey and are much too concerned with the nuts and bolts and the, and how it's going to be perceived when they get back and um, what they're going to be able to get on onto social media while they go. I think it's a terrible shame that that everybody who travels feels the need to tell everybody back home what's happening from day to day as they go around because they will never feel really away anywhere. There will always be that, this connection, which is almost inevitable, isn't it, with the internet? You, um, so you can't really hope to ever feel that you've got lost anywhere. 
um, which is one of the prime factors in, in, uh, in my experience, was the knowledge that nobody knew where I was and there was no way I could connect with anybody that I knew. And, uh, and, I had, and I was out there on my own, totally vulnerable to whatever was going on around me. And I think that's what produces the kind of really useful commentary that, that I made in my book. And, and, and that's what I would really love to persuade people to do. What do you mean, like in a masochistic way? Like you have to suffer and, and suffering? Maybe... No, no, that, no, you don't have to suffer at all, but you, you, you have to know that you're, that, that you're dependent on the people around you wherever you are and not about people back home. Mm. Um, that Truly immerse yourself, really, I guess. Yes, to, be immer- to, to immerse yourself. I mean, that then... You need you need to have accidents. You need to have breakdowns. You need to have things go wrong so that so that the people around you can can uh, can provide for you and invite you into their homes and uh, and solve your problems um, and uh, you, you you become involved in their lives and that's how you that's how you travel. That's the way to travel, not to travel in a bubble. To me, you, you you touched on a couple of things there. But one was the, the photos, and you're talking about um, we were talking about photos and whatnot, and 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 um, people not being surprised, I guess, or not being, or you're wondering how how impressed they're going to be because of seeing these photos on social media. And and I kind of remember a, a change. I, I was heavily into photography in, in my twenties and and right on up, and I sort of drifted away for for a number of years there, but. I know there was a point in photography where I think it was around the, tw- the point where digital cameras started to come in, but but even just before that, where the National Geographic shots were one thing, but they were going one step further. They were they were using remote setups, they were using remote vehicles, they were using helicopters, different things like that to get really stunning shots. I mean, the type of shot that no one would ever see, you yeah. know, the close up of the yeah. frog eating the yeah. fly, right? Those yeah, are right. and, and I often thought, you know, when people see these now because everybody's working for that ultimate photograph, they're seeing something that's not reality. And it's so almost exaggerated that I don't know how you would be impressed to go to the Amazon and not see things like they were portrayed in those incredible photos that took weeks and weeks to set up. But would you see them? No, I mean, I, as you say, they take weeks and weeks to set up. That's so, what I, mean. I, I don't think you would, and I think that it, 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 what it does is it cheapens the experience by by seeing this stuff in advance, and and this stuff is is rampant now. Well, yes, exactly. I mean, it, uh, <laughs> it, it, it 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 detracts from the experience tremendously. I think if you. Um, if if you if you could somehow convince yourself that that only well I don't I don't I don't really know where I'm going with this you're you're saying that you that to go to go to the Amazon and not see these spectacular things that National Geographic is doing would leave you feeling that you've been wasting your time right mm-hmm. that, that, but 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 of course if you don't have, if you're not fixated on on taking perfect photographs or anything like that, but if you're just going to the Amazon to find out what it's like to to be there, I mean that's a quite different a different matter. Uh, I I I went to the Amazon four years after I uh, finished Jupiter's Travels. I I was still doing stuff for the Sunday Times, and then and then the editor of the Sunday Times, Harry Evans, got got. The, the editorship of the Times, or the Daily Paper, and I, and he asked me to go off and do some things, and I I went to Manaus on the Amazon, um, and uh, and I um, I took a photograph of of the ground, <laughs> I took a photograph of a square meter of ground that was outside a market, and I and I counted all the things that were ground into the into the earth by people passing sort of crown bottle tops and fag ends and and odd things like that and i i thought this would be an interesting way to to uh, to measure what life was like in a in a particular place and, and i uh, and what i'm really saying is that i would 
I think it's more important to get involved in the in the the small detail of life in in a place like Manaus rather than to take pictures of the opera house and uh, and, and and the obvious and and try to emulate National Geographic with pictures uh, on the river of, of strange animals. It's uh, more important to know what it's what's happening with the people and what they're doing and and politically how vulnerable they are and, and uh, what's the government doing about trees and you know all the things that we actually know are happening there to our dis- disadvantage we're losing huge amounts of stuff of trees um, and so so my my approach today would be very would would have nothing to do with National Geographic photographs. It would, uh, it, it would have to do with um, with trying to understand what's really going on in the places that uh, that I visit, and that's what I tell people they should be doing. And what kind of bike should they ride? What gear should they have? And what color jacket is best for that type <laughs> of adventure? Well, the fact that people are so obsessed with questions like that is is uh, is another thing that I'm sad about, really. I mean, you can go and do, do it on anything, and uh, you know, there's. I suppose there's. A, I've, I've been I've been uh, trying to describe a taxonomy of of motorcycle riders. You know, the different kinds of people that the the one that just goes out for a Sunday ride, and then and then the ones who. Uh, who who might go across the channel and 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 go to Spain or somewhere, but they all go to places that uh, are familiar to them already. Um, and then then there's the guy who has this idea that that he could really have an adventure on his motorcycle, and so he calls himself an adventure rider, and and uh, and he goes into shops and says I'm an adventure rider what do I need and so on and he compiles a huge amount of stuff and and on a very expensive bike and and very often never never goes anywhere and then there is uh, the fellow who who actually does go somewhere and I I think really he would do just as do it just as well on a, a on a C90 or a an old Yamaha, you know, uh, the thing is you don't really need all that stuff at all. So if you're asking about gear, what kind of bike, you're asking the wrong question. Yeah, I think so. I think so. I mean, just, you know, I don't want to take away from people's uh, admiration of motorcycles. I think motorcycles are beautiful things. And, uh, and of course, if you have uh, a a nice, a nice bike, you'd want to use it. But, to go out and spend a fortune specifically on a on a motorcycle that some company is selling you as as the as the adventure bike um, is um, is is really counter to the whole idea of 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 the kind of journey that I think is worth making. You you don't want an expensive bike. You don't want to look as though you've got a lot of money anyway. You certainly don't want to be wearing a lot of expensive clothing. Um, you you want to be able to uh, to take a, take the back seat really wherever you are. It's different today. You see, I mean, when I when I first went, I was a phenomenon, and people didn't go around on bikes. So. I suppose I could have got away with almost anything. And in fact, I did try to dumb down tremendously and I never wore any fancy equipment and for the most part it didn't exist at that time. But I think it's a shame that that people nowadays would think that their equipment and their motorcycle are what's important. It's not at all. Anything that's on two wheels and goes anywhere is, um, is the right thing to use. And the money, if you want to spend it, should be spent on other things. We're going to take about a minute and a half to thank two sponsors that helped make this episode possible and that make great products, actually. Stay with us for more with Ted after the break. 
Well, I've got a tip for you. If you want the world's best cold weather socks for riding motorcycles, then you need Pearly's Possum Socks. Pearly's is the official sock of Adventure Rider Radio. That's my choice, by the way. We don't actually sell that moniker. I gave it to them because I'm such a fan of these incredible socks. I honestly never thought I'd be so excited about socks. These are made with a combination of merino wool and possum fur, which I thought was kind of weird at first because I didn't know anything about possum fur. I did know about merino wool from doing sort of a lifetime of wilderness exploration and and maybe 20 years of being a wilderness guide. You certainly run into merino wool if you're looking for something to keep you warm. And um, even when it's wet, it keeps you warm. There's so many, um, so many upsides to it. But up until I tried Pearly's possum socks, I sort of thought merino wool was the best. Now I did think it. They, I thought it was the top of the heap. Now I know that this blend of merino wool and possum fur stands sort of head and shoulders when it comes to socks. These are full, soft, stretchy, and warm, just like merino wool. Uh, they don't stink like synthetics do, you know, and you can wear them. I don't even know if I should tell you this, but you can wear them several days in a row, not wash them. They still don't stink. Don't ask me how I know that. Grab yourself a pair of the official sock of Adventure Rider Radio and the best cold weather socks you'll ever own. By the way, I'm still wearing them in the heat of an Ontario summer where it's like 30 degrees Celsius, which is, well, it's just hot. I can't, I don't know the conversion offhand. Anyway, make sure you mention to them that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio, pearlyspossumsocks.com. IMS Products makes a foot peg called the ADV peg. They've got the ADV1 and the ADV2 peg. These are seriously large platforms designed to enhance uh, comfort on long hauls, as well as give you the added leverage you need for handling a large adventure bike. Now, uh, another thing that uh, these pegs are designed with is um, sort of a soft tooth to grip to your uh, your boots without tearing them apart, like they're a rounded tooth design as opposed to a pointed tooth design. And they also use offset teeth so that you can disperse the, the weight better within, and so there's less tearing. So if you're wearing some sort of soft adventure boots, which a lot of people like for the long haul because they're comfortable for walking around, etc., but they, they do tend to get chewed up with some aggressive pegs and even your stock pegs without the rubber pads, if your bike comes with them, it'll chew up those boots. Well, you can use the ADV1s, the ADV2s, and then you can enjoy all the benefits from a superior peg design that IMS does, like the watershed design, um, a peg that's uh, visually stunning as well because these things are very beautiful. They're kind of works of art as well, while still keeping your foot firmly in place, give you that control that you need and you should have with your bike, with your foot pegs, um, without being hard on the soles of your boots. IMSproducts.com is the website. Make sure that you mention to them that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. That's IMSproducts.com. You also mentioned in there sort of, um, like, you know, we talked about social media and the thing that you're wondering about where, what the what trajectory we're heading in and, and where it's going to lead us. Um, do you think that back in 1973, when you went on that trip, there would have been people who were 88 years old, which is what you are now, that would sort of look at it and sort of have the same um, outlook on it? Like, I always wonder that as we get older, do we take on the same outlook but that our parents and grandparents had when they would mm. remark about the things that we did when we were younger? Yeah, of course I worry about that. I certainly don't want to come over. Uh, as, <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm, I'm very proud to be able to say that I'm just as left-wing as I was when I, when I was <laughs> well, when I was 20. Yeah, I mean, if you're going to be biased, uh, because, it's good if, you, if you're holding the same, right? You're not just being biased because you're, you're getting old. Well, Older. you know, the, 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 the story was that, oh, you'll see, sooner or later you'll see that... Uh, that the conservative way is the best and so on. I mean, young firebrands always turn conservative when they get over the, into their 80s. But I, I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm, not, um, I'm not inclined to do that. I, was, I think I still believe the same things. Um, unfortunately, the world isn't turning my way at all. Uh, I, I'm really distressed by, by the the way it seems to be breaking up and, and the way in which um, it's so easy for, uh, for extreme people to uh, manipulate things and, and uh, simply for their own, to, to satisfy their own ambitions. It's really deplorable. It's the, the very thing I've been most opposed to, the, the foundation that I was persuaded to, to start was, was intended to oppose 
populism. It was intended to to bring people together rather than separate them from each other. And uh, and so I feel in a way that it's all a bit of a failure if I can't persuade more people to to go out into the world with the idea of joining us up rather than splitting us aside. Uh, so I don't know. I don't think I don't think that um, time has made any difference or age has made any difference to that to that ambition. That's what I still wish we could do. As I as I mentioned, you're 88 years old. Um, I know for me, you know, even just if I look back 20 years, there's some things that I know now that I didn't know or didn't see the same way. You know, I, I always picture like you're, you're climbing a hill almost, um, I, I guess to get over the hill, but you're, you're climbing a hill almost and you, and you have a better view of the landscape as you get older and you've experienced more things, provided you have an, an alert, open mind and you're experiencing things. But what do you know now at 88 that you didn't know at, at 70? Because you did a trip around the world again when you were 70 years old. What do you know at 88 mm. now that you didn't know then? What have you learned? What's the secret? of life because surely I, you, I, you must know it by now <laughs> I, i'm very much afraid that that, that, I, that i not haven't really learned anything um i uh, i still see the world in the same way that i did before um and uh, uh, yes it, it would be lovely to think that uh, that i'm now um, full of wisdom and um uh, uh, and that I can see that it's all going to be all right in the end, or something like that. I, I'm afraid. I'm afraid. I feel just the same. I just. I think that's all. All that's happened is that I see um, wasted opportunities. I, I, um, uh, and I, I'm, I'm afraid I am much more inclined to uh, to think that things will not be very good. I, I'm not an optimist in terms of what's going to happen to the world. But I don't have, you don't have to be, you don't have to be 88 years old to think that. I mean, <laughs> I think there are a lot of people thinking that. Now. No, no so but I mean, were you ever an optimist? Have you switched? Uh, yes, I was. I think, I think almost everybody was at one time. That was the big difference. That, when I, when I think back about it, uh, uh, in 1973, I thought there was a general sense of optimism. Um, there were a lot of things wrong. Everybody knew that. Everybody knew there was poverty in the world. Everybody um, <clears throat> knew that we had a big problem with pollution and population growth and so on. But, but uh, I think people thought then that um, we could get a handle on it, that we would be able to deal with it. And, and the, the great lesson that I've had to learn, along with many millions of others, is that we um, have the same problem today and that we're not getting a handle on it and uh, it's just got worse. So, you know, you can't, you can't go through that kind of... Um, you can't go through that kind of learning curve without, without um, feeling pretty depressed about the future. I remember when we, we talked before, I was asking about how you came up with the idea, what sort of inspired you for, for the for the round the world trip that, that you mm -hmm. did originally. And I remember you saying, I think it was you saw something on television from, from my recollection. You saw uh, there was a news broadcast yes. about something going wrong. Can, can you talk about that? Yeah, <laughs> yes. No, on the contrary, it was a, it was a, a, a picture of something going very right. I, I, I was sitting in a, uh, in a room in the south of England trying to write a novel. And, and the, the BBC programme came on about poverty. And uh, in the 70s, we were all beginning to become aware of other people's poverty. You know, up until, up until then, we'd been dealing with our own miserable experiences as a result of the war. And we were coming out of that and beginning to see that there were other people in the other parts of the world were having serious problems. And uh, so this was a programme about poverty. And, uh, and it was poverty in the, in the South Pacific. And the picture, the picture was a, a picture of some very healthy-looking, beautiful brown bodies um, pulling fish out of the sea with uh, 
gorgeous fruit trees and palms and so on behind them. Uh, and, and it was the absolute antithesis of poverty and misery, if you like. And it just struck me very suddenly that, that you know, I, I can't go on looking at these pictures and not, and, and not knowing what the reality is uh, about what's going on in other parts of the world. And that was what decided me to, to do the trip. Um, uh, needless to say, the work on the novel wasn't going very well. It might, I might, might not have been so quick to, to seize this new idea, but that, that was what got me going. And, and it was always pure curiosity that, that drove me. I was uh, really anxious to know what was going on in the world. And it all has to do again with the fact that in those days, pictures were really quite rare. And uh, even though I'd been working in a, on a national daily newspaper in, in, in London, I still was really quite ignorant about very large parts of the world. So that, that was what got me going. I don't know what, what would drive somebody today. I rather fear that it's not curiosity. I think it might be just wanting to show other people what they, what they can do. Well, very often I think that would be the motivation. I'm going to do something and I want you to watch me um, and see how well I do it. Mm, yeah, that's the, the social media condition, I guess you could say, uh, now where it's, uh, we're obsessed with, with that sort of thing as a culture speaking. But but is is that not, I mean, could that not be equated to today? Because we, we talked about, you know, there wasn't much information back then, but yet you were looking at something that was really what you saw as deceptive. You, you were looking at a picture that doesn't match the words that they're, they're telling you. So it, it piques your curiosity. Nowadays, when people go to places, inevitably, we all do it. When we go somewhere, you, you don't photograph, well, not many people photograph the ground to look at what's mashed into the ground, Ted. But <laughs> most, most of us turn to those those iconic spots and they want to get the iconic shot and they shoot mm. those and they put them out there. But that's not reality either, is it? So, I mean, and we said this, you know, so you, you've got to, um, in, in a way, in a small way, that hasn't really changed much, even though we have much more information. We're still getting misinformation. But you, you're not under the impression that most people... Maybe you're right that most people only go to places in order to take pictures. Is that right? Well, it's a big phenomenon, Ted. I mean, the, the, if you look at Instagram, Instagram is all about sharing photographs. And there's places now that people will go and photograph and they'll they'll put the the, uh, the latitude, longitude with the photograph. It's taken automatically. Yeah. And people literally flock there from around the world to get the same photograph. So it's very much a notch in the belt thing. It's a look at me, I got the shot too thing. It's totally insane. It is. <laughs> I, think, I mean, I, I do I do honestly think it's quite insane that that would be that that would be the motivation for 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 making a journey. Um, and I, I, I can't uh, I can't think why that would be. Yeah, I mean that that describes the sort of person that I really don't want to meet. I can't <laughs> I can't see how that person would have anything to say to me at all about anything. And if you do, they're probably uh, going to be in a group of, uh, you know, a couple hundred others that are getting the same shot. You didn't yeah. answer my question though. I asked you, what's the secret of life? At this point, you must know. The secret of life. <laughs> uh, I, I don't know about the secret of life in general. I do know that I, that, that I feel um, that, that my mother is largely responsible for my being able to live this long, but because of her genes. But beyond that, um, I think, I think it's because, with a few exceptions, I've always done what I wanted to do. I've not allowed myself to be become captive to uh, to other people's needs and ambitions and so on. So, so when I didn't, when I I, I worked as a newspaper executive for a while, and I I I was beginning not to like it. And uh, I should have stayed and become the editor of the paper, but I didn't, and I went off and did something else. And I think that's really what's kept me going, is the fact that everything I do is pretty much what I wanted to do. And, uh, <clears throat> and so I'm very happy with this. Um, that, that's, I think, a very important thing. It's much more important than, uh, than, than not drinking too much or... It's um, it's very important to to feel that it's your life, 
and uh, and to do what you want to do with it. That's probably my main my main advice secret that I would share with anybody. Hey, as as far as advice goes for for travelers, of course, I've I've got to ask you this sort of question. But um, before I ask advice, I'm, I'm curious if if you were going to go out and travel now, would you be looking for undiscovered places, or or what sort of route would you be interested in? And I don't, I'm not talking countries. I mean, like, are you looking yeah. for undiscovered places? You're looking for untouched yeah. people? What? Yeah, it's a, it's a, of course this is the the big question. Um, Certainly, I wouldn't be going to somewhere uh, that I, where I thought I'd be, um, have a marvelous time. For example, to some beach in Bali or something, something like that. Because it's a very strange thing that that, that people do go on journeys to go to somewhere where they, which they think is idyllic, and then when they get there after five minutes, they've had enough of it. Um, and, and people don't have a very clear idea why th- that that's going to happen. So that would be ve- a very important piece of advice would be to think hard about why you're going to where, where it is you think you're going and, um, and think rather more about what you're going to be going through on your way there and on your way back. So when it comes to finding some way, uh, if it's at all possible, to emulate what was once an adventure, um, I think you do have to look for parts of the world that are really very, very little known um, and really going there on a motorcycle is hardly... Is hardly the the best thing to do, but it might well be that the best thing to do is to go there, uh, for example, to some part of Bolivia that's in in the Amazon basin, I mean, which you probably don't know much about, because and I certainly don't, um, but which is full of people and full of interest. And to go there and maybe get a bike when you're there would probably be very useful. I do have a friend who has done that, and uh, um, he doesn't write to me very much, so I think he's very busy with something or other. But that that would be that would be my approach to 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 a proper advent, adventure would be to go somewhere that you know nothing about if you can find such a place, and and uh, and then get down to the detail, the fine detail of it and live there for a bit and see see what's going on with, with these people and what you can learn from them. Um, I would think that's much better than um, taking a, going, going on a bike along roads that have been travelled forever. Um, and certainly I wouldn't go in search of a photograph. <laughs> But by the sounds of what you're saying here, you don't see the motorcycle as an integral part to any sort of travel. No. And I think you've no, sort of no. made that clear throughout your career, haven't you? That you're you're more oh, of a traveler yeah. than a motorcyclist. You've never said you're a motorcyclist. Oh, yeah. But but I'm I mean, I'm not gonna take away from the fact that it was a wonderful way to travel when I did it. It it really it really paid off. It was it was it was great. Um, it's just become less and less important as time goes on. But if, but for some people, um, some people may mm. be more into the ride or into their motorcycle. Because yeah. we even talked yeah. about it's easy to poke fun at people and say they spent too much money on their bike or they, they're buying too many accessories or yeah. whatever. But that's all from a certain perspective because, you know, like you, we just said there, you're more of a traveler than a motorcyclist. Yeah. If a person's yeah. more of a motorcyclist and likes to ride their bike to places, yeah. do you see anything wrong with that? No, nothing at all. No, it's just a different not. style, no, isn't it? No, not at all. No, uh, but I think you were asking what should people do in order to have the kind of experience that I had. And, yeah, uh, no, and, and I get and, that and, for sure. Yeah, and and uh, the bike is not going to be uh, significant um, from that point of view. Yeah. But it may, of course, it may be a wonderful thing to ride. Um, I. I I don't know if, if somebody came up to me and offered me one of those bikes now for nothing. There you are. Everything's paid for, insurance, everything, everything you want. 
what what would I what, I can't think of anything I'd do with it. I'd sit on it, and people would take a picture of me on it, and then I'd probably give it away. I can't I can't. Um, <laughs> Let me know if that happens because I want to talk about the giving away yeah, thing. Right, yeah. yeah, I will. <laughs> Before we go, just just some some top tips for just just from your perspective, your advice for travelers. I know we've covered some things here, but what would be mm. your top tips? Well, obviously, the, the, to start with, be very clear about why it is you're doing it, uh, uh, which may not may not be self evident. Think very hard about why you're doing it. Secondly, take as little stuff with you as you can possibly manage because you can get almost everything everywhere anyway. Um, and finally, do your damnedest to get lost. I mean, <laughs> if uh, we're talking about the kind of travel that I think of as travel, um, try to try to get lost. Try to, don't stay in touch. Don't um, try to join this other people's space and not your own. Uh, that would that would be the important thing for me. Is uh, really get into get into the places you're going to, and not just going through them. Um, that would that would be the, the important thing. And of course, if you write a wonderful book, I'd love to hear about it. And just before we wrap up, um, you have you have an offer out there for aspiring writers and artists. Do you want to talk about that? Mm. Well, yes, it's a it, it's a it's a house that I bought with many bedrooms um, because I thought it would be a really useful thing for some people who've been traveling and have a and have an ambition to make a a really readable record of it or even photographic record or whatever. Um, some, it's a kind of retreat where people could, could do their stuff. And then if I were actually able to help them as well, I'd be glad to do that. Uh, so people need to know that it, it exists. I, I'm obviously not going to take anybody in. Um, we need to know each other a little bit first but beyond that that's what it's all about um, and uh, if you feel like uh, writing a book in the south of France get in touch with me well quite an amazing offer here just to be very clear you're offering to let people come and stay in your house and, um, yeah. and you possibly even help them with their books so you've got somebody who has the best-selling book of all time for motorcycle travel offering to share your expertise with um, someone who may come along and, and fit the criteria mm -hmm. for you that's yeah. an amazing setup how many rooms do you have well, I've got five bedrooms wow yeah and uh, one of which is mine you know and you're located where yeah. In the, in the I'm located uh, about uh, about three quarters of an hour away from Montpellier, which is a big city on the south of south coast, and uh, about uh, thirty five kilometers from the sea, and about uh, sixty kilometers from a wonderful set of, of mountains and, and wild places. Uh, so it's it's a very it's a very lovely area. Well, of, of course, we'll put a link in the in the show notes to your website so that people are interested. They can just go to the Thank show you. notes and, and find you there. Ted, it was great to talk to you once again. Thank you very much for coming on the show. Well, I'm very, you know, I, I'll talk to you anytime, Jim. Why don't you come out? <laughs> <laughs> I, I'll, I have that on my list of things to do. <laughs> very good. I'm looking forward to it. And the lovely Elizabeth with you. Yeah. Absolutely. All right, Jim. Thanks, Ted. Thanks again. Bye-bye. was Ted Simon from his home in the south of France. Ted is the author of the wildly famous motorcycle travel book, Jupiter's Travels, which, as Ted said, is still in print today, 40 years after the fact. If you haven't read Jupiter's Travels, probably owe it to yourself to grab a copy and give it a read, or maybe pull out your other copy and, and reread it. Maybe it's time for that. 
Ted has a number of other books as well, which you can have a look at at his website, which is jupitalia.com. And of course, we have a link to that in our show notes for this episode. By the way, the show notes um, for each episode are on the page where each episode is featured. So if you go to adventureriderradio.com, you look at all the links across the top of the page. One of the links is podcast. If you hover over that, you're going to see that it brings up the shows by year. Click on any year and it lists the shows by date. And you click on a show title and then the show notes are right there, usually along with some photos, often less seen photos. And of course, the links that we talk about and the products that we talk about in each of the episodes. And we also have a search field in the right hand column so you can type keywords into to search for episodes or, or topics and things that we've done in the past. It's a great way to find something specific uh, that you're interested in. I just want to remind you that this episode has been brought to you in part by Max BMW Motorcycles at www.maxbmw.com. Also, Best Rest Products at www.cyclepump.com. Green Chili Adventure Gear at greenchiliadv.com. And Moto Breeze Chain Oilers at motobreeze.com. Hey, you do us a great favor. If anytime you're dealing with these companies, anytime you see them anywhere, you mention that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. up another episode of adventure rider radio and we'd like to thank you for being a part of it hey like i asked at the beginning we need your support so um drop by the website adventureriderradio.com click on the support button and if you join our patron supporters you're going to see a special bonus in there that we offer you as a patron supporter of a certain level anyway time to uh, to get out there and ride your bike oh wait I, I first need to thank our producer elizabeth martin for all her hard work that goes on in the background and let me mention that we also have another show called ARR Raw. We do that monthly. That's a motorcycle travel panel type show that you can catch anywhere. Great podcasts are listed. That's ARR Raw. And of course, you can find that on our website as well. My name is Jim Martin. Thank you very much for listening. See you next week. Hi, I'm Sterling Noreen. And you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Hey!